Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we'll look in just a moment in verses 1 through 11, which will be our text for this evening. In chapter 6 of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan describes a town which he calls Vanity, and a fair in that town which he claims is no newly begun business, but a thing of ancient standing. Further, he states that the way to the celestial city lies just through this town where this lusty fair is kept. And he that would go to the city and yet not go through this town must needs go out of the world. Of course, this was the place where Christian and his friend Faithful were sorely tried because they would not succumb to the temptations and the pleasures of that town and its fair. And in like manner, you and I must face the question of pleasure. Tonight, we want to think about this question of pleasure. Can pleasure satisfy? Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse number 1, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. When I was a young man, I went with some friends of mine to Hershey Park, not far from here. And at Hershey Park, there was a new roller coaster. It had only been at the park for a couple of years, and I and my friends were determined to ride the Sidewinder. Some of you may have ridden that roller coaster before. I think it's since been renamed to something like the Jolly Rancher Remix or something like that if you've been there more recently. But when I went, it was a fairly new roller coaster and it promised the thrill of a lifetime. 
When we got to the park, there were many people there, and we stood in line waiting our turn to ride the Sidewinder, but because it was such a new coaster, there were lots and lots of people waiting to get in line, and the line was long. It was our good fortune that a little while later, a thunderstorm came, and it started raining pretty hard. We were determined to stay because we'd paid a lot of money for our tickets, but a lot of other people left. The rain stopped, and everything cleared up, and we decided we were going to ride the Sidewinder. And we went and got in line, and there was hardly anyone there. So because we are gluttons for punishment... We rode the Sidewinder and decided we were going right back to do it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, for a total of 13 times round the circuit of the Sidewinder in a row. Those were the days when I didn't get quite as sick on roller coasters. But even then, on the ride home, I regretted my decision. It wasn't quite as fun the 13th time around as it was the first time. Because pleasures have a way of diminishing and leaving a bit of a bad taste in your mouth if you overindulge. I distinctly remember on the way home feeling quite dizzy Whenever I closed my eyes, I was retracing the circuit of the sidewinder, complete with the stomach flips and the head spins, and I was very grateful when I was able to fall asleep that night and wake up having forgotten all about it. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, the wise man describes to us his search for satisfaction in pleasure. He had already been to the halls of learning and had been disappointed by what he found. Now he decided he would go to the halls of pleasure, and he was hopeful that here in this place he would find that which he was longing for, real satisfaction, uh, a sense of meaning, uh, a, an understanding of what life was all about. Now as we look at the text, we find that he determined to put himself to the test of pleasure. He says in verse 1, I said in mine heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. The idea of proving means to put to the test. He was going to test himself and see whether mirth and pleasure would be that which would bring the ultimate satisfaction to his life. The word mirth that he uses in verse number 1 speaks of lightheartedness and gladness that comes from what we would deem to be legitimate pursuits. These are the things that bring joy to our heart. A beautiful sunrise, a butterfly, a a good-tasting meal, sitting around with our family and enjoying one another's companies. Uh, These sorts of things, there's nothing wrong with them, and they can bring a spring in our step and some joy in our heart. He said, I'm going to prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. Pleasure would be all of the best things by the definition of men. These would be all the things that everybody says, this is going to make you happy. If you could only attain this, if you could only get this, if you could only possess this, then you will be happy. And so the wise man set out to enjoy pleasure. That is, 
he decided he would experience it all for himself. He was not going to take anyone else's word for it about these things, but he felt that he needed to live it up, and he was determined to drink from the fire hose of self-indulgence. You cannot come away from these 11 verses without the distinct impression that there is a strong emphasis on I, me, myself, self-indulgence. He was determined that he was going to find pleasure. Verse 2, he speaks of laughter. I said of laughter, it is mad. Now, laughter is a little bit different than the words mirth and pleasure, and particularly in this context, the laughter that he is speaking about is the sporting and mocking at sinful or wicked things. Where mirth and pleasure might be those things that we would consider to be legitimate pleasures that should be enjoyed by people as we go on our journey of life, laughter, as it's referred to here, is something that we would say is probably off limits. We would characterize this person who's after laughter with the hard partying man, running the clubs, drinking, drug use, excessive pursuit after pleasure that might be seen in a frat house or the after party of a major sporting event. The things that we would equate with excessiveness, It's the idea, this idea of laughter is the idea of trying to lose yourself and forget your troubles by drowning it out with fun, fun, fun. I distinctly remember when working in the world that I would frequently be asked, what'd you do this weekend? When the answer came back, I went to church. (laughs) Come on, man, don't you have a life? And this is what they were referring to. Don't you ever laugh? Don't you ever have fun? Don't you go to the club? I worked with one man who was determined to give me an education. And what he meant by education was to introduce me to the ways of the world. Many, many times he put pressure on, hoping that I would yield in this area. The wise man went after these things. He said, I said of laughter, it is mad and of mirth. What doeth it? Notice in verse 3, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine. What did he try out? Well, he mentions wine specifically here. It's clear in the context that he's speaking about alcoholic wine. And I want to remind you tonight that substances promise you that you'll feel better after you indulge. You could drink some alcohol and forget your troubles for a while. Just loosen up and life will be better. Hey, with a drink of beer, maybe you'll be able to laugh and forget some of the troubles, some of the pain and the difficulty. Drugs promise you an escape to a different reality than the one in which you're currently living. Do you know anyone that lives in this fashion, that lives in this way? He said, I I sought to give myself unto wine, the idea to give himself completely over to it, to uh, to allow it to be a part of his life. And then he says, and to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men that they might do. So he went after folly, laying hold on folly. If reality is so painful, maybe the secret is to try to exist in an atmosphere of foolishness. Denying the hurt, the pain that are outside of the fun house, the comedy club, 
If we could just laugh away our troubles, maybe we'll feel better. Maybe we could just find a, a way to stay here in the fun house and never have to cope with what's outside. This is how people live. He went past the wine and laying hold on folly, and he details then in verse 4, I made me great works. These are what we might consider the more legitimate pursuits of pleasure and and joy and happiness that might come. And, And Solomon was uniquely suited to do these things. While the wine and the folly are descriptive of one kind of pleasure, which many moral people would see as unwise, there are other legitimate pursuits. What are these? Well, he lists them. He says, I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. Solomon became a great builder. He made all sorts of construction projects and and farming projects, places that he could delight in. These are the pursuits that a man could give his life to, which better his life and those of the people who are around them, him. He could look at these things and say, well, these are contributing to society. Look at the beautiful architecture. Look at the house that I made. Look at this vineyard and the way that it's laid out. Look at the fruit that's produced. And he could be proud of these things. In this life right now, we're told to make something of ourselves, to do something with our lives that is worthwhile. The question is, is it worthwhile? And does it last? In addition to these things that he made, he goes on to talk about the great wealth that he obtained. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle. All of these are a measure of wealth above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. He got it all. He got everything that his heart could desire, everything that he could imagine. He amassed to himself, mixed in with all of this. There's no doubt a reference to his great harem, which he collected. 300 wives and 700 concubines with with whom he could seek all of the sexual pleasure that his heart desired. Truly Solomon had everything that he thought he really wanted. Great wealth. He went all out to get the thing that his heart desired. He tested himself with it. Now, I want to point out before we move on, most of us would not pass the test of pleasure very well. Given unlimited access to whatever we want, most of us would not fare well. There's a reason that God puts limits on what we can afford and what we can possess because it truly is not good for us. But Solomon tested himself. Then I want you just to consider for a moment, second of all, the excess of his pleasure. He makes this statement in verse 9, So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. I was great. He's not bragging He's making a plain statement of fact. Now, we know from the scriptures that Solomon was fabulously wealthy, 
But it's hard for us to picture this in modern terms. When we think about what Solomon possessed, what does that mean that he was rich, that he was great? Well, modern scholars estimate that the net worth of Solomon in today's numbers would have been north of $2 trillion. Truly, one of the most wealthy men to have ever lived on the face of the earth. He was unbelievably rich. Just for a point of reference, because we throw numbers like million, billion, and trillion around, and we think, oh, it's just a couple more zeros. So just for perspective, we're going to use time as a measure of million, billion, and trillion so that you can get a small idea of how much wealth Solomon possessed. Most of us understand a million, right? That's, that's something that's okay. I can understand how much a million dollars is. Okay, so in terms of time, one million seconds would be 12 days. One million seconds, 12 days. A billion seconds is 31 years. Little difference between 12 days and 31 years. A trillion seconds is 31,688 years. So now do you have a little bit of a sense of how fabulously wealthy Solomon was? He, he wasn't trying to figure out how to pay the light bill. He, he wasn't worried about the $100 missing in his checking account or whether or not the chariot had a flat tire. It really was no big deal. The man had more money than he knew what to do with. There was no possible way he could spend everything that he possessed. I was great and increased more. He experienced more than those before him and perhaps more than those after him in the arena of pleasure. To say it succinctly, he had it all. All the things that you think and hope will make you happy, he had it. And he's going to give us a conclusion about it all in a moment. Unbelievably, he makes the statement in verse 9 that though he was great and increased more, he said, also my wisdom remained with me. And he's making a statement here that he didn't lose his perspective in the midst of it all. Remember, he's putting himself to the test. He's, he's trying to learn some things about himself and about life. You know, there's some people who think they're more clever than others. They can taste the pleasure and remain aloof to it, not being overtaken. They can have wine without being an alcoholic. They can try drugs without becoming an addict. They could do without the possessions if they need to. They don't actually need them. And this is what Solomon was saying. He wasn't some kind of an embarrassing pleasure hound. He simply tasted it all. And he's telling us, I tried it out. I, I'm telling you, this is what it was like. I had it all. He's not like a falling down drunk kind of a person or somebody who's embarrassing. He's someone that you would say he's a respectable member of society who's enjoying life and living it up. And his life is what we would call good. If you held him up as an example in the United States of America, people would say, that's the definition of the American dream. I'd like to be like that. I'd like to be respectable, 
but have access to all the pleasure that I want. He goes on to say, verse 10, whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. There was not one thing that he wanted, which he didn't try out. There was no pursuit that was out of bounds if he felt that it would make him happy. There were no restrictions at all. Have you ever heard those questions like, if you had no limits of money, what would you do? None of this was an issue for Solomon. He had no limits of money. There was nothing at all that was off limits for him. He tried whatever his heart desired, he could get it for himself. Now, I want you to consider, as we think about the excess of Solomon's pleasure, consider that you and I live in a generation with more wealth, more opportunity, and more disposable time and income than any of our ancestors. We live in a fabulously wealthy country and in a fabulously wealthy time. People are talking today about how we need to cut the work week from 40 hours to 32 because, after all, we need more time to pursue things that we really enjoy. Our forefathers would have died laughing, rolling on the floor. 40 hours? Wow! How do you get off so easy, they would have said. Because the reality is, even 100 years ago, life was hard. Life was difficult. Most people worked and worked and worked just to put food on the table and to survive. Most of us don't understand that because we live in an unbelievably blessed time. I'm not complaining about any of this. I'm just saying that we need a good dose of perspective. Though we have all of this wealth and all of this opportunity and all of this disposable time and income... Are we more happy than previous generations? Have we found the secret of life because we got the latest iPhone or upgraded to a house in the neighborhood that we've always admired? Did our life measurably improve when we got that extra $100,000 in our retirement account? Or when we moved from driving a Chevy to a Mercedes? Did our life get all of a sudden better? The truth is, look around you. And pay attention to what people are saying and doing and how they are expressing what they're thinking. Do you honestly think people are more happy? It's anecdotal, but I would say no. That's not the vibe that I get. Think about the pleasures that are available to us that we count as common. Do you know a hundred years ago, Children in our country would have been delighted to receive a single orange as a Christmas present because it was so rare and it was such an unbelievable delight. They would have danced with joy on Christmas morning to get an orange. So I'm going to propose that you try that this Christmas. Would that make your children happy? I was informed today that one of my children doesn't even like oranges. I was crushed. But it was perfect for my illustration. No, the truth is your children would want more than that. Actually, our houses require walk-in closets and gigantic storage areas to keep all of our stuff. Many people even have off-site storage because they can't fit everything on their own property. 
If that's you, I'm not laughing at you. We've got all of these things, but are we better off for it? Are we happier? You see, the promise of pleasure is that you will be truly happy if you have just a little bit more. Just a little bit. I I don't need much more, just a little bit more. So we've seen his test of pleasure, and we've seen the excess of his pleasure, but now I want you to notice in the passage the failure of pleasure. Did pleasure measure up? Did it give him what he was looking for? Well, did you see when we read through the text what kind of language he used to describe the pleasure that he experienced? His summation in verse 1, behold, this also is vanity. It's like trying to grab a hold of the wind. It's complete emptiness. It has no value. In other words, pleasure does not deliver on its promises. Pleasure tells us you can really be happy if you just get, and then you get it. And it's like the cotton candy at the fair. You take a big bite, and it disappears in your mouth. And you think, that was disappointing. But at least it tasted sweet. I think I'll try some more. And so you take more bites until by the time you finish your big batch of emptiness, your belly hurts, and you wish you hadn't gotten it at all. And some of you who are younger are like, what are you talking about? Just wait till you get a little older. You won't like it nearly as much then. He goes on and he says in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. Laughter is mad. What does he mean? Laughter is utter foolishness. It has no value or basis in reality. It borders on insanity. People who make it their business to live with this mocking, scornful, sporting kind of an attitude, always looking for something to laugh raucously about. Isn't it interesting how so much that the world thinks is funny is also off color? It's, it's twisted, it's, it's cynical, it's sarcastic, or it's utterly perverse. And that's the only way that they can find humor. And this is what Solomon says, it's mad. It's complete madness. It borders on insanity that people think this is the way to live. People who make it their business to live in this way are out of touch with the realities of life. That's what he's saying. Laughter is mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? Remember, mirth is like that valuable kind of joy. It's, It's contributing value to your life and other people's lives. It's taking joy in legitimate things. And he says, but at the end, what does it mean? What doeth it? What is the value in it? There's no lasting value. Think about these legitimate pleasures that the wise man experienced. Are those gardens and vineyards and pools still contributing to society today? No. They're long gone. They're buried under piles and layers of rubble and dirt. They've been gone for a long time and replaced with others that other people have built. This is a good and important lesson. The riches and pleasures of this life are for this life. 
They're short-lived in the satisfaction that they can bring. God never designed them to bring lasting pleasure or satisfaction. In verse 11, he went so far as to speak about these pleasures in this way, I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun." He said when it all came down to the end and he had experienced it all and he had lived it up and he had gotten everything that he could think to get, it was nothing of value to him. He was trying to grab a hold of satisfaction and he might as well have tried to grab the north wind and hold it with his two hands. Didn't work. Not only was it emptiness, it was actually a vexation to his spirit. Instead of being happier... He was less content. He was more sad. He was weighed down because in the end, it wasn't what he thought it would be. He started out trying to be happy and he ended up being vexed. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who have experienced this very thing. They've started down a path that the world told them was going to lead them to satisfaction and joy and pleasure... And they found out that it used them up and spit them out. And when they got to the end of it, they said, what a waste. I wish I had never gone down that path. Even under the sun, he said, there was no profit. No profit to the things he had experienced even here in this place under the sun. All the things he had tasted and seen and heard and experienced... The summation of it all was, what a waste. You say, well, that was just Solomon. No, actually, this is quite similar to what many other people have seen and experienced. I was reading an article today, and it was referencing the work of Michael Norton, a researcher from Harvard, who conducted research not that long ago to test the happiness of wealthy people. In his research, he was able to gain access through some banks, to their ultra-rich clients. His target was people who had a net worth of at least a million dollars, but preferably much more than one million dollars. He and those who were helping him in his research asked some questions of more than 2,000 people who fit this category. And the questions they asked were twofold. First of all, they asked them to rate their level of happiness on a scale of 1 to 10. And then the second question was, what would it take or how much money would it take for you to get from where you are to, say, a 10? I would be happy, I would be a 10 happy if I had this much. Consistently, these researchers found that no matter how great the net worth, and bear in mind, they started at a million dollars, but many of these people had net worth much higher than one million dollars. And what they found was that consistently, no matter how great the net worth, most of the people interviewed indicated that they would need somewhere between two to three times their current net worth to be truly happy. Now, most of you think, listen, I'd be happy with a million dollars. But would you? 
over and over again, the research has borne out that no matter what you have, it's never quite enough to make you happy. There's a reason for that. Because it was never intended to make you happy. And you're looking in the wrong place. Yet we still are drawn by our lust to think that pleasure and possessions will fill us up and satisfy us. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We've seen the conclusion of the wise man and certainly it's depressing. The honest truth is... If you and I only had Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, we might be tempted to say, well, what's the point then? I don't understand why I would continue on. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse number 9, reminds us of an important truth. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. In the previous verse, he reminds us that we ought to be content with food and raiment. In other words, if we have the things that we require for life, the things that we need, and we, we I think all of us do, then we should be content with that which God has given to us. Now, you might ask the question, then what is the function of riches? And what is the function of things? Is it wrong to have money? And clearly in the scriptures, we know that it's not necessarily wrong to have money. But there is a great danger in riches. And and see, the reason we want riches is usually because riches buy us pleasure. We have the ability, when we have riches, to buy things that we believe will make us happy or satisfied. And so we want more so that we can gain more access. And, and in a certain sense, we could say that equation sort of works. Okay, I'll explain what I mean. When, when people are living in a way that they're struggling so much that they literally don't know where the next meal is coming from, If a dad doesn't know how he's going to put food on the table for his kids every day, that brings a significant level of stress into that man's life. He's got a lot of things on his mind. He's he's probably not living a super happy life. Now, I'm I'm not suggesting that you can't be happy. We know the scripture talks about joy in the midst of adversity and all those things. I'm just speaking from a purely worldly sense, all right, A, a physical sense. But you can understand how, okay, if you can take away that pressure... And, and you can get to a place where you have the things that you need for life. Your bills are paid. You may not have a super, a super big bank account or a whole lot of things. But listen, you got food on the table. You got clothes to wear. You got a vehicle that you can drive. You got a place that you can live that doesn't let water drip in on your head when it rains. Hey, listen, that's not too bad. So your life is pretty good. But then when you get beyond that, money doesn't do a great job of raising the outlook on life. It it, it diminishes very quickly. In other words, if you had had a million dollars, you have access to a whole lot of stuff and you're probably not that worried about your finances. And you say, well, I want to have a hundred million dollars. Well, you know, a person with a hundred million dollars can buy a lot of stuff too, 
It's just on an order of magnitude. So then we don't buy an iPhone. We buy a gold-encrusted iPhone or a diamond-studded iPhone because, hey, you know, if you got the money, why not? Doesn't everybody want a diamond phone? (laughs) Hey, listen, if you want one, I'm not going to knock you. You could try a cubic zirconium. It's cheap. And it sparkles just the same. I guarantee you, if you're not a jeweler, you have no idea the difference. And your iPhone could look really nice. (laughs) Now, think about this for just a minute. Riches don't satisfy. Pleasures don't fill you up. I want you to think for just a minute about what God says. Turn Turn with me to Psalm 16 and verse 11. Where does pleasure come from? Psalm 16 and verse 11. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The Bible speaks very clearly about pleasure... And points out to us that real pleasure is found in the presence of God. You and I were created to worship God. You and I were designed by God to come into His presence and to fellowship with Him. To enjoy His His presence and His personal presence in our lives. And herein is found joy. And do you know tonight, no amount of money can purchase that. No amount of money can make you right with God. You will try in vain to to purchase the presence of God. That is something that is given freely to all those who desire to be in fellowship with Him. It's really in His presence that we find genuine pleasure. Then we find, if you want to turn to James chapter 1, turn back to James chapter 1. And we're just gaining a little bit of perspective surrounding the experience of the wise man. James chapter 1 and verse number 17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every good gift comes down from the Father of lights. Do you understand tonight that earthly pleasures were originally designed by God and they can bring some measure of satisfaction, but only when they are in their proper place. Have you ever meditated on this truth? That God delights in us experiencing pleasure. Why else would he have made the world such a beautiful place? I mean, you think about it. You get up in the morning and you see the sun rise and it's beautiful and it, it's free. You don't have to pay to look at it. It's, it's there. Anybody who wants to look at it can look at it and see it. It's, it's, and it's freely offered by God. And yet something so simple can bring such incredible pleasure. And God is the one who designed that. God is the one who designed our taste buds so that we, when we taste food that is properly seasoned and prepared, and it's pleasing to our palate, it's enjoyable to us. It brings us pleasure and joy. 
in the right place, right? In the right measure. It's God who gave us the ability to see and to hear, to touch, to feel, to smell. And all of these things God has designed in such a way that we can receive pleasure from the things that we interact with in the world that he created. He's the one who gave us the opportunity to have relationships with other people which can give us pleasure. And all of these other things that we can experience, they all come from God. But remember I said they only bring pleasure or satisfaction in their proper place. You see, when we, we must regard all earthly pleasure as a gift from God that is intended to turn our attention to Him. He designed all those things and gave all those things. Remember, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Do you know that when it rains and the, the, the pleasure of the rain dropping on the earth and on your face and, and you smell the fragrance of the water as it's watering the earth... Ungodly, wicked people experience that same pleasure just like you do. And you say, that isn't fair. Why does God make it pleasurable for them too? Because it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. God is good to everyone in a certain measure. And he gives blessings for people to experience. But the intention of those pleasures is not for people to get lost in the pleasure. It's for them to realize somebody designed this and gave this to me. And he is worthy of my worship. And whenever our pleasure does not lead us to that place, it is out of place. These pleasures will become snares and sorrows if they're chased for themselves and out of the boundaries that God has set. How many people have pierced themselves through with sorrow because they thought that sexual gratification would make them truly happy? They chased after a pleasure that in its Normal form, God created and God made, but they took it outside the boundaries of what God designed and they thought that was going to bring them pleasure. But what does it really bring them? Heartache, sorrow, disappointment, cynicism. It it doesn't end up being what they thought it was going to be. It never really satisfies And we could go on and on with many other pleasures. You see, when we get the place or the pleasure out of its place and we forget the purpose of it, then we find that it doesn't satisfy. But in its right place, I mean, think about it. We live pleasurable lives. God is good to us. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. You sit around your family and you laugh with your kids and you enjoy life, you, you have a place to live that keeps you dry and warm in the winter and cool in the summer, and you have clothes to wear that, that last for a while, and you have food to eat and all of these blessings of God, and, and there's a lot of pleasure in that. Sometimes you ought to just say, thank you, Lord, for being so good to me. He's given you some things to enjoy and to experience. They're not an end in and of themselves, but they are designed by God to bring a certain amount of pleasure. But now I want you to think about one more thing, Matthew chapter 6. The problem with pleasure is when it becomes an end in itself. And we start to think that 
this particular thing is going to make me happy. But God warns us about this, and He knows that our hearts can be caught up in the pursuit of these sorts of things. And so He reminds us as disciples of Jesus Christ in verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Isn't it amazing how the pursuit of pleasure can bring such incredible stress to people's lives? They're trying so hard to get all the things that they've dreamed of and that they think are going to make them happy and that they want, and they end up on the payment train. And then they're stressing out, trying not to get the car repossessed and the mortgage foreclosed and the, the charge card shut down, They're they're trying to balance all of these balls that they're juggling in the air, and most of it is because they're trying to live a life which is beyond their means. If you just be satisfied with what you have, with what God has provided you with, you could find great pleasure in it. But when you're no longer content with what He's provided and you want more, 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 you'll find that the satisfaction fades very quickly. Which is why God says we need to set our heart first on the kingdom of God. And there's another reason for this. It's because all of the pleasures that God has designed for us to experience in this life are really short-lived. They're not going to last that long. They're passing away. They're not going to be here for much longer. One day, you're going to say goodbye to that loved one for the last time. You've had a a wonderful life with them. You've enjoyed uh, time together. But one day you're going to say goodbye, and it's the last time that you'll say goodbye. One day you're going to drive that sports car, and that'll be the last time you drive it. You thought that it really made you happy, and it was a lot of fun to have. It was wonderful, and then it's not there anymore. One day you're going to lose your sense of taste. And food isn't going to be what it once was. And on and on and on we go. See, God designed these pleasures to be short-term to remind us that that's not the end. That's why we seek the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God is eternal. The kingdom of God lasts forever. And that's what we ought to pursue. In the meanwhile, while we're pursuing the kingdom of God, we'll find that he's going to give us the things that we need. Yes, even some things that we want. But guess what? That's not the end of life. That's not the main pursuit. It's like when you go to a restaurant and they bring bread or you go to a Mexican restaurant and they bring chips and salsa. Now, if you fill up on chips and salsa you can't have a burrito because you're going to be too full. So you have to enjoy the chips and salsa in measure, realizing that the burrito is the main course. That's what you're waiting for. I mean, listen, I like chips and salsa, but a burrito is a lot better. I'm going to wait for the burrito to come. They come back and they're like, do you want more chips? No, thank you. 
Now, I know some of you have a different strategy. You're like, I eat all the chips and salsa, and then I take the burrito home. (laughs) And when I get hungry, I eat it later. All right. I'm not going to argue with your strategy. But I do want to use that analogy to help you understand the pleasures that God gives us in this life are just like an appetizer. They're just a small tasting of what God has stored up for us. And he wants us to allow those things to tune our heart to his praises, to seek after him with all of our heart, realizing that when we get in his presence, it's going to be so much better than any pleasure we've ever experienced in this world. So the question before us, can pleasure satisfy? And the answer that the wise man found, no. No, if you're seeking pleasure in and of itself to be the thing that's going to make you happy, you are going to come away terribly disappointed. But if you allow the pleasures of this life to tune your heart, to sing the praises of your God, to cause you to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you'll find that you can enjoy little tastes of pleasure in this life while you prepare yourself for the incredible pleasure that He has in store that is awaiting us in eternity. Remember, we must pass through Vanity Fair on our way to the celestial city unless we bypass it through death. So we must learn how to deal with these sorts of temptations, lest our heart should be overcome with the things of this world.